Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with... Scott Tobias. Tasha Robinson. Genevieve is behind the boards. On the first half of this episode, we looked at John Carpenter's The Thing. Now we turn to the recently released It Comes at Night, the second feature from writer-director Trey Edward Schultz. Set in the aftermath of a fast-spreading plague that's taken on apocalyptic proportions, it largely takes place in a sprawling upstate New York house home to a family of three, Paul, played by Joel Edgerton, Sarah, played by Carmen Ayogo, and their teenage son, Travis, played by Kelvin Harrison Jr. After their home is broken into by an intruder named Will, played by Christopher Abbott, they decide to accept his story that he didn't know it was occupied and invite Will, his wife Kim, played by Riley Keough, and their young son, Andrew, into their home. This goes well until it doesn't. We'll talk about this film and bring in John Carpenter's The Thing as a point of comparison after the break. I'm going to try and help your new family. I want to thank you again for letting us stay here. Just going to run through a few things. When we go out during the day, we like to stick to groups just for safety. The red door. It's the only way in and out of the house. It stays closed and locked all the time. <laughs> I have the keys. It's the only set. <laughs> Most important thing. What's he see? It's okay. Just go inside. We never go out at night. was already open when you got there yeah then who opened it okay i saw it comes at night at a surprise world premiere at the overlook film festival back in april and it left me shaken and saddened and i'm eager to talk to you all about it um so what what did everyone think I loved it. Absolutely loved it. In, in contrast with the audience I was seeing it with. Oh, no. Uh, well, no, I think it was, it was a film that had them on the line until the very end, uh, which let them down profoundly. That uh, didn't let me down, but I can kind of see where they're coming from. But I love it. I think it's a really interesting companion piece to Schultz's previous film, Krisha. A.L. Scott said in his review that Krisha was a family drama that played like a horror film, and this is like a horror film that plays like a family drama. I think that's a really good insight, and the films films have those connections. The other thing I think is the performances are extraordinary. These mm-hmm. are this is a cast of actors who are if they're not getting their due should should be getting their due. I mean, they're just Joel Edgerton. We've talked about on the on the show as being a really effective performer. Uh, Christopher Abbott. My first exposure to him was James White, which is one of the most incredible performances I've seen in the last few years. So seeing him was was great. And uh, Kelvin Harrison Jr., who plays Travis, who's probably the main 
character yeah. in the movie. Somebody I and I wasn't aware of who's extraordinary, and Riley Keough, of course, I, I really like. And don't leave Carmen Hiago out. She's, she's right, exactly. I mean, it's, such a, it's such a good cast. It's so c- controlled. You really don't know what the threat is other than it being fatal. You don't even know really what kind of form it, it takes. Mm-hmm. But it's such a space. It's the it's atmosphere, the use of sound. It's just the whole thing is um, really exciting. Uh, I liked it. Tasha? Well, unfortunately, I am one of those people who was let down by the ending. I think that Schultz uh, has some extraordinary talent when it comes to creating mood and atmosphere. I think he does some fairly daring things when it comes to uh, pushing up into people's faces and creating just this really intimate atmosphere. I think that he does a really excellent job of bringing across emotion. And at the same time, I I have narrative problems with his films. In this case, one of the things that bothered me most is just that he keeps going back to Nightmare as the primary source of, of tension in the story. And it's just, it's such a cliche, the sequence where somebody, something horrible happens and then uh, somebody sits up bolt upright, uh, covered in sweat because that thing was a nightmare. I think he returns to that well way too often in this movie. And it's meant to be symbolic. It's meant to give you uh, access into the character's mind and let you know exactly what his concerns are and how he's processing. And it's meant to be a, an alternative for him actually expressing the things that he can't express. He's expressing these things emotionally through dreams because he can't speak about them. Mm-hmm. But what that gives us is a mute character who doesn't vocalize his feelings and you have to interpret his feelings through what is still to me just a a tired film cliche. And then the film's ending really did let me down. I felt that it was rushed. Uh, I felt that it didn't explore what was going on in enough detail and it kind of robs you of the emotional impact. And that ending to me is just kind of a, a kick in the knee, a kind of a, you know, you you were expecting things and you didn't get them. And that's fine because that's not what the movie is about. But you also expect some sort of sense of emotional resolve, emotional fulfillment, culmination of all of these things that have built up during the movie. And I feel like he just isn't interested in those things and he walks away from them. And to me, that really undermined the story. Yeah, it's it's a difficult ending. And at Uproxx, uh, Vince Mancini uh, wrote, he kind of picked that as the main reason audiences have rejected this this film. And I get it. I mean, I get it. It's just the ending to me is not necessarily ambiguous. It's just really bleak. I mean, this is this is people who lose everything and you know have very little left and then they lose everything. And death comes for us all the end it, it's it's yeah. uh it's rough but i i wouldn't necessarily want it to be any other way and i don't know that you know the radio turns on and the government comes on and announces there's a cure everyone's going to be okay is is that makes it a better movie yeah i mean maybe it needs a little bit of something maybe i mm. I, I don't really mind how how aware one's fate lies in the film that the fact that we lose the uh, entire other family completely and then also Kelvin Harrison's character Travis is also gone and he's he's really since he is our probably our main character if we were describing him as a main character and it's his sort of coming of age tale in a lot of ways I mean, um, one of the it's is is feelings of, of sexuality that, that yeah that overtake yeah. him and there's a lot of different ways to read it comes at night and that would be one of them too it is a coming of age story that doesn't quite work out yeah i mean I, and i think I, I mean the film is really committed in a way to disappointing audiences in the sense that it stands for almost everything except what you hope it to be when you come go see a horror film which is a monster right it can be whatever it's just a thing that we anticipate but not the thing 
<laughs> just in it, some hostile, amorphous thing. But I don't know why. I guess we're starting with the ending. Yeah, here, we're, but... we're starting with the ending. We're starting about about why others have not responded to this film. I responded to this film tremendously. It just as a piece of emotional filmmaking and and just you know technical prowess and use of this cramped dark space. I mean, this this is a film that's not afraid to just bathe the film in black in mm-hmm. a way that that's so affecting uh, creature as well they're they're both using film to cut through a couple different layers and get right to the emotions in a way that i, f- I really responded to in the laying out of space i mean we, we talked about that with the thing as well but just a lot of the the space is established here via lantern light you yeah between this and beguiled it's it's really a good stretch of films for lanterns right <laughs> everything's cyclical so lanterns could be making a comeback yeah you just get a, a you know a nice establishment of space you get the menace of that red door which is locked until it's not what i appreciated about the film one of the many things i appreciate about the film is uh, how much you care about and understand all these characters how much they do genuinely long to be this surrogate family and to try to trust each other and how you do also understand how it falls apart and how that falling apart is inevitable and not necessarily a sign of any one of them being bad or malicious or of ill intent. Uh, it's just things just happen and it's just a, it's just a tragic thing that occurs and that's it. Um, so again, it's very bleak again for a horror film for any film. It's quite bleak, but I appreciate it. I thought it played the tradition of a lot of horror films that I liked, including the thing, but and uh, we talked about also uh, doing it with Night of the Living Dead, but it's its own beast as well. I don't know if I put this in my review or not, but there is it kind of reminded me of like a thought experiment. It's like, what if Night of the Living Dead, but without zombies? It's kind of, <laughs> kind of, it's all just focused on these arguments between people who are thrown together by horrible circumstance. To me, it feels more like what if the witch in modern day without a witch? Yeah. I mean, there's some of the same sense of claustrophobia, of a family pulling itself apart, of the sense that there is outside pressure and it doesn't matter whether that outside pressure is real or not. And just some of the same tone, some of the same, again, the intense blacks and the the bleak lighting and the, the bleak ending, like all of those things came together. But then I came out at the at the end of it sort of thinking, well, OK, but what did this film do that the witch didn't do? And I didn't have a lot of answers for that, apart from the idea of just sort of bringing in more people. I don't know if I want to ruin everything for Scott and his uh, hatred of extra textuals, but Schultz was in Chicago for the screening that I saw, and he did a Q&A afterward. And people asked him where the movie came from. And the, the movie emerged from... Uh, his father was a drug addict and they were estranged for a very long time. And he kind of came back into his father's life when his father was on his deathbed of, I believe, pancreatic cancer. And after his father's death, he sat down and wrote this kind of in a rush. And it's him exploring these feelings of anger and helplessness. And you can see that, uh, to me, this is the the relatively rare case where the extra textuals make the film for me, because I can see so much of those feelings of, of helplessness and anger in Travis as he watches his father go through all of these behaviors that he's helpless to stop, that he feels completely outside of and a part of, but that, that still affect him against his will. And I interviewed Schultz for The Verge shortly thereafter, and we talked a fair bit about that. But we also kind of talked about uh, all of the open questions in the movie. This is a movie that 
creates a lot of mysteries and does not in any way address them, is not interested in addressing them. And one of the things I asked him was, like, do you know the answers to these questions? And he said, yeah, he does. He just didn't want them in the film. Hmm. I can respect that for the most part. And I think a lot of the ambiguity of this film makes it more interesting. For instance, I I don't want to know whether the child was actually sick at the end. I think the movie is so much richer with us not having a definitive answer for that. But there are places where the movie creates questions that are distracting for me. And one of the big ones is the business with the dog, uh, how the business with the dog wraps up. That that entire plot line is created to give you the illusion of there being a monster in the woods, which there, so far as we know, is not. And I can't explain it in a mundane fashion, which leaves me feeling like it's not ambiguous. It just kind of feels like a narrative cheat to me. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's again. That's it's just the quality of the filmmaking. His command of this of this tone of of the sort of ominous, foreboding atmosphere. I didn't necessarily need an answer. I, I I found what happened extremely scary, and I wasn't necessarily looking for a resolution to that. I just I found I found it satisfying on its own terms. Hmm. I mean, the key with the dog is that the door is open. All that stuff is all leading up to the fact that the door is open and who opened it. I think right. all of the mayhem that happens in the last third goes is on that point, which you don't even get to really until they've tried to resolve this problem. And then the question starts to arise, like what's the deal with the door? Who opened the door? Did you open it? You didn't open it. Somebody did. You know, what is it? What does it mean that it's open? Um, as far as the dog running into the woods, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's fine that we don't know what it is that's, that's causing this uh, problem. It's poor, not that the dog, dog runs into the woods because that's fine. It's not what injures the dog because there are any number of, of answers to that. To me, it's how did the dog get back into the sealed off part of the house beyond the red door? Well, and also the dog disappearing into seeming thin air yeah that would probably that would bother you too i would think tasha it does bother me a little bit here's the here's the big mystery of the film that doesn't bother me and that i actually think is really cool we have no indication whatsoever what what's going on outside in the world and I, i talked to schultz about this because i thought it was just really neat for all we know given what edgerton's character says like they retreated as soon as started people started getting sick and they have had no contact with the outside world since for all we know they found a cure for that disease like two days after they left and they've isolated themselves and are living in this like paranoid state for no reason we don't know we don't know what's going on out in the world and i think that that makes this film like so much richer and more terrifying i guess were were it not for the others also living in a paranoid state oh sure you know but hmm. we've got a total of you know a couple of other it's people a small sample size true yes. that's true very small sample size and very isolated and it's it's very firmly established that the other family has also been isolated and has no news whatsoever from the outside and there was part of me that was expecting this movie to end with Travis just washing his hands of everybody and like walking off. And then we suddenly were in M. Night Shyamalan's The Village. That's what I was, was going to say. Steps out into Times Square and is like, oh, everything's fine. I'm not saying it would have been a better movie, but it was it was one of the things I was expecting. And as I say, it's a big mystery. And I think it's a big mystery that gives the film a strong edge. Yeah. I mean, as far as other things that give the film an edge, as I was saying 
earlier you could look at the film as a coming of age film uh with travis as as the hero you know he's 17 years old in the film once riley keogh comes into the picture it just triggers this really intense response from him both in his dreams slash fantasies and then in the conversations that at least the one prominent conversation that they have with each other i find that very strong and then you know and then you get a lot of other scenes between just the characters of the film that are so powerful, like uh, Joel Edgerton and Christopher Abbott having a drink together. Um, you know, there's a weird, I'm not going to say warmth to this film because it's not really warmth, but there's an intimacy to it and a sadness to it. I think you do, I felt just a great deal of compassion for all of these characters and, and a, a huge amount of sadness to see things fall apart as they do because they you know word helpless definitely comes to mind um to describe that predicament they really have all of these innovative ways or these clever ways of staying alive all of these rules you know they they know how to kind of quarantine each other they know how to enter the house you know moving in pairs I and mean, they have all these things set up but even with all, all of that in place you know the inevitable happens and and things fall apart so i don't don't think it is inevitable though i i think that that's where the film kind of takes one of its most interesting turns is i mean it's a paranoia film it's a film about people who cannot bring themselves to trust each other and like there are these brief moments where everybody seems to mostly drop their guard and even in those moments you can sense that paranoia that feeling of there's an inequality here like we are aware that we're in your house and there's the huge drama later when will's family wants wants what they think is fair and it just Mm -hmm. becomes a big ambiguous question like what is fair you know whose side are you meant to be on i kind of like the fact that you're not on anybody's side i do agree with you scott that one of the big strengths of this movie is that you can feel everybody's uh point of view but i wanted travis's point of view to come to something to to mean something in the end and i feel like the whole sexual tension with riley keogh's character is an interesting point that's raised and then dropped and ignored and the film doesn't do anything with it. His, the disappearance of his dog is an interesting point that's raised and then resolved with violence, but not resolved in any sort of narrative sense. And then the question of his illness at the end, it just sort of feels like he becomes a, a sacrifice to this concept of the film in a way that to me questionably fits in with the narrative. I don't have a problem with mystery. I don't have a problem with ambiguity. I do have a problem with themes that exist only as an open parenthesis with no closed parenthesis, and there's no payoff. Like this film reminded me a great deal of The Witch, but it also reminded me a great deal of The Babadook and Get Out. And those are both films that just derive immense power out of creating a metaphor and then following it through, explaining to you in the end, not with a big, here's what the movie is about, but bringing that metaphor to fruition. This, to me, was a movie that never brought any of its metaphors to fruition. Let me respond to one point that you made a little bit ago about paranoia, because one of the things that kind of stands out for me in what I feel like is a fairly compassionate rendering of all of these characters is that the source of paranoia and mistrust between these characters is not, well, I guess we'll probably get into it when we get into connections about, it's not like the thing it has to do with two couples who are trying to protect their child. And that's the source of paranoia on both sides is that Christopher Abbott and Riley Keough have the son that Joel Edgerton and his, and his wife uh, played by Carmen Yogo think is sick and vice versa they think travis is is sick and and that is the source of paranoia between them and that's where the mistrust comes in 
it's a different vibe, I think, than you know others another scenario where people are paranoid like the thing. Well, with that, it seems like a good time to segue into our next section. We'll be right back after this break to talk more about the connections between It Comes at Night and The Thing, two stories of suspicion in which tragedy seems just one wrong move away. Andrew was in Grandpa's room, and he was having a nightmare, so I woke him up and I brought him to your room. Then I went to the back hallway, saw the door open, heard something, and then I woke everyone up. Andrew is in the other room. Yes. Is that your baby? I don't. I can't remember. Did you see Stanley last night? I can't. Remember. Andrew, think real hard and tell mommy what you remember. I can't remember. How can you not remember? Does he sleepwalk? No. He doesn't sleepwalk. This doesn't make any sense. Because Andrew is barely tall enough to reach those locks. You're, you're positive that the door is already open? Yes. How can you be positive? It was the middle of the night. You could have been half asleep. He said he was sure. I was wide awake. I'm, I'm positive. Look, I'm not I, saying maybe... you're lying, Travis. I'm just saying it was the middle of the night. Maybe you're not remembering correctly. I know what I saw. I'm sorry, but the door was open before All I right, got there. I'm, I'm not going to jump to any conclusions, but... Just to be safe, I think that we all shouldn't interact for a day or so. Dad, I'm sure it's fine. Listen, I'm just taking proper precautions, okay? Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. There's so much these films have in common. You know, we were already talking about paranoia before the break, so we may as well. I like talking about paranoia. How about you guys? Let's let's keep let's keep talking about it. What's, Wait, what do you mean by that? <laughs> I feel that there we've got two different flavors of paranoia in these films. How would how would you compare them? I feel like the paranoia of the thing is a very specific paranoia. You might have been infected by this unearthly monster. You might have turned into an unearthly monster and you might be about to turn me into an unearthly monster. The paranoia in It Comes at Night is this sort of free-floating anxiety that is in a way less resolvable because it doesn't pin down to any particular thing. And I think that plays into what Scott was saying about it being a threat against the children, that you never run out of threats to the children. In this world, the disease is a threat to the children. The outsiders with guns are a threat to the children. Whatever's lurking in the woods is a threat to the children. Running out of supplies is a threat to the children just change in and of itself. You know, these these strangers coming into the home, these strangers inviting you into their home might be threats to the children. It just never ends. And it becomes impossible to resolve. In The Thing, people take, take concrete steps over and over and over. They try to take the next concrete step towards resolving their paranoia by dealing with the problem, and it doesn't pay off. But in It Comes at Night, they kind of try to make peace with each other in, in an attempt to settle that paranoia, and then they can never relieve it because there's always another threat, and there's always another possible perceived potential threat. Uh, yeah, I mean, the big difference, I think, too, is that the couples the the families in it comes at night like each other and really want to make it make things work uh, and, and we start we start with resentment in the thing and things deteriorate from there uh, so in that sense uh, they're very different flavors of paranoia because you know it, it, the thing they don't really care about it that much about each other to begin with another way it comes at night is more complex is in the sense that that in the thing it's like you as tasha said you either are an alien or you're or you're not and this it's like 
I, I know, I know you're a person and, and I know you like me want to survive, but I never know if you're telling me the truth or not. There, there's this impossibility of ever really knowing where the truth lies with these outsiders that come into your home who seem very nice and you get along with and like, and in a world where civilization still lasted would probably be friends with, but you can't quite. The other thing too, and this is maybe a, a zombie movie thing as well, is that you could never come to admit quickly that you or anyone really close to you in your family is has turned. Sure. Uh, and so you're going to try to protect them, even though when it comes to other people, you're absolutely cold-blooded about it. So in that sense, uh, It Comes at Night is strongly in the zombie movie tradition. Yeah. That's always the toughest part of a zombie movie. The nice yeah. people who, who realize it and they got nowhere to go. Mm. Of course, at least with a zombie movie. I mean, people get bitten and are then in denial and hide it from each other. Oh, yeah. But they know that, you know, you know when you've turned. You know when you've been bitten and you know that that's something you need to hide. I, again, as, as we said earlier, I'm just really struck by the degree to which people in the thing are afraid that they have turned into aliens and they don't know it. I just, I still think that's a whole nother level. We're talking about two different types of bonds in these films too. We have the bonds between coworkers and, and the thing and the bonds between families and the bonds between families that are trying to somehow form a family of, of, of their, of their own. Mm-hmm. Those play out in some, some interesting ways because, because ultimately I think it comes at night, you know, th- their loyalties are going to be to blood no matter what. And the thing is sort of a different dynamic entirely. One of the things that's interesting about that, this was something else I talked to to Schultz about, because he says that Night of the Living Dead was a major influence on It Comes at Night, but so was The Thing, which is why we chose this movie in particular. We kind of debated back and forth which of those two to go with. And one of the really interesting things about Night of the Living Dead is the casting and the fact that it becomes a political statement at the end when you know, your last survivor is a black man. And, and well, you, if you've seen the movie, you know how it ends. So it struck me as really interesting here that the the central family is Joel Edgerton is white and Carmen Ayogo is black and Travis is black or potentially mixed race. We don't actually know. Schultz pointed this out himself. So uh, I hope it doesn't come across as me, you know, throwing any kind of shade or insult at mixed families. But, you know, he he brought up the ambiguity of, you know, you don't know whether Travis is their child. You don't know whether Joel Edgerton is actually playing his father or playing his stepfather. The movie makes a point of not bringing it up and, and we don't need to know. But that that dynamic, that uncertainty just kind of brings a whole nother question to the the concept of family. You know, is he protecting his son or is he protecting the son of the woman he loves? And I think that it's a very subtle thing, but that question kind of changes the ending one way or the other. Um, it just, it casts shade on exactly who he's failed and how. I never really thought about it that way. Yeah, it wasn't something that occurred to me at all watching the movie. But uh, Schultz very distinctly meant for that to be a little ambiguous, exactly what that family's status is and how it came together. I, mean, I think that's, I mean, to me, the strength, but maybe also the weakness of the film uh, for some is is that it is that committed to ambiguity always <laughs> right into the end that, again, made the still small audience I saw it with last night, you know, vocally displeased that it, that it ended where it was. They wanted something a lot more definitive than two people kind of looking at each other <laughs> across the table <laughs> and, a, and an empty chair between them, which is a pretty, pretty they, bleak ending. They got the No Country for Old Men ending instead of the uh, um, something a little bit more with a little more bang to it. Mm-hmm. And 
and No Country for Old Men, I had that same experience, which I also had in my It Comes at Night screening, where the the audience just makes a a collective animal crowd noise when the movie's over of like anger and disgust and disappointment. And you just sort of have a feeling of, okay, that's this is what the animal thinks. It is always such a strange experience to be in a movie theater and to get one of those like thoughtful, you're meant to carry this away and, and hold it in your hand and contemplate it endings and to have it immediately be followed up with that noise. The definitive one for me is when you, I think I was sitting next to you when we saw Cloverfield. <laughs> and somebody <laughs> like, got up and yelled, this is BS. <laughs> <laughs> Except you yeah. didn't say BS. No, you no didn't. I'm going to go even further back than that and, and go to to uh, Limbo. The the Japan. oh yeah. sure that, that was that was one that I saw in a in a theater and had a similar reaction where that just that absolutely ends on a question mark and uh, people were pretty upset. Mm. I could understand people making the upset noise at that and still not hating the ending because for me. I mean that boy, that ending is a just a kick in the the nuts, and <laughs> I'm saying this as somebody that doesn't have them. It's it's painful, but it's such a perfect ending. It's a perfect ending for that story. It's been it's called limbo. Guys, it's called limbo. You know, but it's also it's it's so earned. It's so well constructed up to that ending, and it's a beautiful ending. And you can think it's an absolutely beautiful and perfect ending, and still go oh because you really <laughs> wanted to know. Yeah. Let's talk about dogs. I have a hard time seeing dogs hurt or in peril. And this is a good you, double feature for you. Rough, this is a rough movie to watch. But I, I mean, which I is the just, more, which is the more traumatic of the? Oh, uh, it comes at night because with the thing I, that is a great dog performance. But that dog seems evil from the beginning. That is one creepy looking dog. Uh, uh, the performance that, that's coaxed out of that dog that just to be able to stare impassively and then move so creepily. I mean, it's, it's, it's great stuff, but this dog is just being a good dog. You know, I, and it's hard to have, you know, see what happens to it. And it's another case where, you know, once the dogs disappear, it is, it is another symbol of, of humanity kind of crumbling away as well. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that is definitely when the things take a permanently dark turn is when the, when the dog disappears. The dog was obviously useful because the, it seemed to be able to, alert them of something sure. that shouldn't be there that they should be alarmed about and so it uses it loses utility but of course he also you know for travis loses his companion it's upsetting just like every other every loss of the film is upsetting yeah i think it's interesting that in it comes at night you know you're introduced to that dog pretty early and it's very clear what that dog represents the dog belonged to his grandfather the dog is like his remaining legacy from and connection to his grandfather and the dog is something he can relate to in this household where he cannot express himself in the thing the dogs like we I don't think we even find out that there are dogs until uh, like a half an hour into the film. It's just, hey, put that dog with the other dogs. And you're like, wait, there are more dogs. I, <laughs> I could have been seeing dogs all along. <laughs> One assumes, although I don't think it's ever discussed, that these are working Malamutes for you know transportation around Antarctica. But we never really get to see them as anything other than either sleeping or frightened or dying animals. So they just they don't have the same kind of emotional impact. That said, uh, I really appreciate you calling out the dog performance in the thing because that is a really effective, creepy dog. Right, right, yeah. 
And just I, the the simplicity of having the dog looking out the window, watching people doing things like that's a pretty easy shot to get. And it is an incredibly impactful shot to have. Well, the dog is also, you know, one, one of their few companions. And, and there's no, as we talked about before, there's no reference to or link to the outside world at, at all. Both of these films kind of look at the apocalypse or the potential apocalypse through a, a very narrow setting. I, I think that, that was a really effective choice for, for both. Cause I mean, I don't think if you cut away to anywhere else for these films for even a moment, I think the films fall apart. And that's kind of, if you think about it, if you do survive an apocalyptic event, that would be how you would see the world anyway. Right. You know, you wouldn't get the big picture that, you know, that a film is going to show you, you, you get, unless you, your electronics and cable still work, then you, you, you get the advantage of the world that you have. But you know, the other thing too, with, you know, both thing and it comes at night are in a single setting, which, which heightens the, intensity and both filmmakers uh trader edward schultz and john carpenter are really skilled at just the basic work of mapping out that location extremely well mapping out that space really well so when you're moving through it in darkness or in fright or in chaos you still kind of know the lay of the land um, and that's important. That's always really, it's always, it's a, such a basic part of good filmmaking, but it's something that so few do well. And it's such a basic part of horror stories to, to be isolated, to not have recourse, to not be able to call up the authorities and say, come fix this. And that's so well established in so many little ways in the thing, whether it's talking about the fact that it's the first week of winter and the weather's just going to keep getting worse, or the fact that we get a weather report every time Kurt Russell goes out in his helicopter. And, you know, we're, it, we keep getting reminded that what he's doing is increasingly unsafe because of the winds, the whole business with the radio not working. You know, we, we keep getting reminded that this is going to have to be resolved on this site with tools available. And that just makes it more effective as things come apart and those tools are destroyed. You know, as somebody takes an axe to the computers, as people die one by one, you're running out of the resources that you need to solve this problem and the situation just keeps getting worse. And that's just a fundamental part of horror films. I feel like It Comes at Night is also, in a way, kind of takes place after the moment in most horror films where these people kind of resolve themselves to live in isolation, that there's not going to be a solution, that this terrible spot they find themselves in is going to stretch out for the rest of their lives. And that's something I had not seen before and found really intriguing. You consider, again, that the impact of that on their son. In a way, in a way it makes sense that he doesn't live through the thing because he's coming into, a, into what? <laughs> he's yeah. coming of age film to where particularly is sexuality and, and, and you know, reproduction potentially or anything anything else he might want to do, uh, there is no outlet for that. That's part all. of why I felt like that what kind of was resolved in a way. He has these sexual feelings for Riley Keough's character and then you realize this this kid has no outlet for these have no outlet for these feelings anywhere ever if if this situation continues yeah, yeah. sure but i mean you get that in other stories like equa sleeps to mind and it comes to a head in a a meaningful way like something something happens with it whereas here it just it seems like something that comes up once and maybe we're just supposed to sort of keep that on the shelf of like the list of things that's affecting him but it just it felt like we didn't return to it 
One of the things that bothers me about It Comes at Night is, I mean, as you say, like if we moved too far out of that isolated space, we lose the story. So we don't see the scene of Paul actually meeting up with a family for the first time. We don't see Riley Keough's like introduction to him. We don't see where the that family was living. That's all just kind of left off screen. But we do get the whole sequence with Paul and Will confronting the people in the woods and what comes of that. And that's sort of important to the development of their relationship. But it also means the film abandons its point of point of view character for a while. And to me, that just I, it, it throws me off the central narrative. It seems like it's I mean, first of all, Trade Schultz says that part of what that scene was about was the fact that the two gunmen in the woods, when you when you look at them later, seem to be father and son. And it's just another family parallel. And it seems like it's an important bonding moment and it's important to establish that, you know, they can't just walk off into the woods, the village style and like find a friendly park ranger. But at the same time, it just it completely unbalances the narrative for me. The fact that the film is so tied to Travis's point of view for the most part, and then it just kind of leaves him behind to do something else. But then Paul and Will's point of view don't become as important again in the film. I, it just I, narratively, it, it just seems messy. It seems like it's going in too many directions and, and not coming back in those directions. So we should talk about the monsters. I mean, I, I think we've kind of covered that there no monster presents itself and it, it comes at night. And, and it would be easy to do something kind of try it like it's sort of the monsters do on Maple Street where it's their paranoia all along. But I don't think that's really quite right because there is a real threat outside the disease and also possibly the hostile forces trying to take what little they have from them in the name of survival. You know, I think the thing is a scarier movie where this is a, a more unsettling movie. That's how I would contrast these. How about you guys? The advertisements for this movie definitely played up the idea that there was a physical monster. And I just I think that's such a mistake. I'm not even sure this is a horror movie in some ways. It has the, the language of a horror film. But going back to A.O. Scott's point by way of our own Scott Tobias, it, it, it is, you know, family drama that plays like a horror film. Or, or rather a horror film that is actually a family drama. Yeah, mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense. But we, we don't necessarily re- – we're teased a lot of a presence sure. in the woods. Uh, it takes a while before we say, well, we start maybe questioning that there's anything there at all other than some malady that's waving people out. I'm comfortable with that, though. I think uh, you know it's uh, – meaningful contrast between the two films i mean you know this uh, comes at night is very strong is still quite strongly influenced by the, by the thing so uh, this is uh, one element that's where the films are quite different i just think it's a mistake to anytime the people putting together the marketing or the trailers decide that it's more important to get people through the door than to give them the film that you've promised them it just it always seems to backfire on the film and I don't think was there ever going to be a satisfying experience that people could have with this film, and if they see it in large numbers, though, you see, you show that you open this movie on two or three thousand screens, are people going to? Is there going to be a scenario in which they're ever going to be satisfied? I always want to imagine that with a filmmaking is this strong and the experience is powerful, that people will want to let go of some of their conventional expectations, and I'm always wrong. <laughs> I mean, I, I had I, I had sort of like the the audience I saw the witch with was similarly. I think they were not that vocal. I think they were being very polite because as polite as possible because the filmmaker was there. But there was sort of a a, a feeling of 
huh? And that kind of swept swept over everyone after after we saw that film. Yeah, well, the people were really hostile toward toward that. I, I thought for more mysterious reasons, uh, maybe sure. having to do with the pace of the thing. It comes at night. I I had to really think myself about whether I liked that ending or not, and I could I could certainly see why why uh, people rejected it. But uh, the feeling that I got from the vibe that I caught in my theater, which is really not scientific at all, <laughs> was is that people were on the hook until until it ended where it did and, and, and weren't happy with, with all that ambiguity in the ending. But uh I never I saw the the witch with you know, an overlook like audience I think was gonna be fine with where that film ended up going. Yeah, I, I think with both the witch and with this there you maybe need a, a little time to to walk away and and think about what you got as opposed to what you were expecting maybe with cloverfield too but you're definitely expecting something different if you saw those trailers and the kind of the cheating involved to get there is a little angry making though one of the big cheats that they used in the trailers uh, was like using the nightmare images of the grandfather to imply that there was a monster and leaving aside the marketing the way the it comes at night begins with that sequence with the grandfather is i think one of its big strengths because in that sense like the monster there is just paul's sort of growing inhumanity almost uh, indifference like what what they do to the grandfather how the grandfather's life ends is deeply horrifying and is meant to be um, but Paul's reaction to it, like Paul's matter of factness about, well, this is what's going to, what has to be done. So we're going to do it is one of the many things that gives the film like that unease and that sense of terror. Like as much as the thing sets up its paranoia early on with the Norwegian camp, it comes at night, sets it up in the first sequence with, you know, if, if you come down with this disease, this is what's going to happen. You're going to get discarded and dumped in the woods and set on fire. And it's it's a terrifying lead up that in some ways, I feel like the film doesn't doesn't quite get back to that particular height of grimness well until the very end, which I guess does bookend it nicely. That's one commonality the two films share is uh, the the burning of the bodies mm. of a pestilence so so foul that you must eradicate a living being or what was once a, a living uh, being from their existence entirely by burning them. And there's something so much more profound about that than just mere burial or, you know, chopping up into bits or however, however bodies are disposed of in movies like this. I don't uh, know what the secret is, but fire makes it good. <laughs> fire makes it good. Thanks, Dasha. That is a really good point that I hadn't thought about. Uh, just the degree to which both, both of these films have that attitude of kill it with fire. It's the only way to be sure. The monster in the thing we haven't, I mean, we've talked a lot about the effects because the effects are so striking, but I like looking back on the film, I think one of the things that's most interesting about it is that that monster is so inscrutable. Like you have so much proof that when it's a dog, it behaves with a malign intelligence and a specificity. When it's a human, it's capable of, of talking and imitating the personalities of people and their behavior and their voices. And then it turns into this like shrieking, many-legged thing that just makes no visual or biological sense. 
And like Carpenter said that H.P. Lovecraft was a huge inspiration for these works. And that's kind of where you get that idea of the incomprehensible cosmic horror that has absolutely nothing in connection with humanity. You can imagine characters looking at this thing and being driven instantly insane, a la, a la an H.P. Lovecraft uh, hero. Oh, yeah. Especially the when when the thing emerges from the, the chest of the, the guy who's uh, being, being defibrillated and it's just sort of this like gibbering version of his head hanging from the ceiling like that is some Lovecraftian nightmare right there but you assume that what the thing wants is to infect everyone and take over the world but you don't really know because there's no way to communicate with it it's so incomprehensible and its behavior up to a point is the behavior of something that wants to hide and and be secret and be quiet but it keeps doing these things that give itself away because uh, apparently because it has the biological need to uh, expand itself and move on. And just some of the things that it does are pretty incomprehensible for an intelligent thing if it was behaving like a human. It's only comprehensible for an intelligent thing that you cannot comprehend. And I think that's really cool. I do too. And these are films that in some ways are beyond our comprehension, I guess, or mm-hmm. at least maybe perhaps we've reached the limit of our comprehension of these films that hopefully you will watch and enjoy them and get back to us. You can find John Carpenter's The Thing on the usual streaming services and on a Blu-ray edition from Screen Factory that I can't recommend highly enough. It looks great. And the company packs the disc with great features, new and old, including there's this uh, 97, 98 documentary called The Thing Terror Take Shape, which is a feature length making of worth the price of admission uh, it comes to mind is currently in theaters but you should probably catch it soon we'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment your next picture show Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it will put some interesting choices on your radar. Tasha, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Well, I wasn't planning to recommend this, but it came up in the course of conversation. So I'm just going to throw something uh, out there for John Sayles' uh, movie Limbo which came out in 1999 and is a family drama that has some elements uh, in common with some of the things we've been talking about here in terms of isolation and family and the need to protect a child, a child who is coming of age and doesn't entirely want to be protected. And we've sort of spoiled the ending a little bit by noting that it's an ambiguous ending. But again, it is there in the title. And to some degree, I, I can't help but wonder if people will have a less frustrating experience if they have some idea going in of what they're going to get. That said, I mean, it's a John Sayles film. The The dialogue is amazing. The performances uh, by Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio and David Strathairn are terrific. It's a really, really powerful and incredibly well-constructed film. And it's just, it's just a really good uh, drama. If you like dramas like It Comes at Night, if you like experiencing that level of, of pain and distress and empathy and connection with characters, uh, you'll get it in limbo. But more on the creature feature side, I would like to recommend 1987's The Hidden, which is uh. a movie I always come back to when I think about The Thing, uh, directed by Jack Shoulder. came out in 1987. Uh, it has some gooey effects that are in a way, I think, intended to uh, mimic The Thing. Stars uh, Kyle MacLachlan. And uh, I guess I don't, I don't want to give too much of it away, but uh, it is also an alien invasion thriller, uh, in particular a uh, mismatched buddy cop movie 
movie that is not in any way a comedy and is about the attempt to track a alien capable of changing bodies, capable of taking over humanity one person at a time, uh, as though it was a, a detective procedural. And it's just it, it's a really good film. I think it goes to some really interesting places. Yeah, The Hidden, oh, wow. That was uh, that was one that I have a special fondness for because it was one of the movies that was playing the first week that I uh, started working at a movie theater at the age of 16. <laughs> How many times did you see it then? I just saw the ending of the film quite a bit and can still kind of sing along uh, with the closing credits song, which I won't do. Wait, why won't you? I didn't. I don't even remember there being a closing credit uh, song. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Just just hum a little. I, I want to know the, the the romantic theme from Hidden. <laughs> I just remember there being something like, uh, I'm not going to do it. Forget it. <laughs> you know you want to. No, no. You'll, you'll look it up. It's a nice little number. Keith, what about you? What's been good for you lately? Uh, you know, I'll just be short because I haven't seen that many movies between the last tapings, but the ones I have, uh, I may count. And, and uh, you know, occasionally, you, you know, you see a movie that, that you loved, you know, like you're a little worried that it's not going to be as good as your, your memory. And, and, and uh, it turns out it's not. Sometimes you have the opposite experience, which is actually better. Um, I had a chance to see The Iron Giant on the big screen. <sighs> Um, Always a yesterday, winner. yeah, in thirty-five millimeter. I hadn't seen it since it came out in nineteen ninety-nine. Did you cry? Of course, <laughs> <laughs> not a monster. Uh, it is Brad Bird directed it. It's this gorgeous piece of hand-drawn animation, but kind of from that sweet spot when, when there's hand-drawn was if not the dominant was still uh, living side by side with CGI uh, with with computer-generated animation, and and you can kind of take some tools from CG and apply them to hand-drawn in a way that looked really beautiful. But it's the story of a, of a boy in the 1950s who befriends a giant robot of mysterious origin and, and who is treated with suspicion by some people. But he's, he's a, he doesn't want to be a bad robot. He wants to be a good robot. And he really is a good robot. And I'll say no more. Uh, <laughs> if you haven't seen this film, it, is, there's, it came out on Blu-ray, I think, last year. And I'm sure it's on streaming services. It's a beautiful film. And, and uh, um, I took my daughter, which was great, on Father's Day. So it was a, it was a total movie-going delight. Did she cry? At my favorite movie theater, too, Music Box here in Chicago. Did she cry? I don't know. <laughs> I, don't I, feel like, I feel like that movie doesn't have the emotional impact on children that it has on adults. Yeah. But, man, it is, uh, it, it's got so much emotional impact on yeah. adults. Yeah. Uh, every time I see it. Every, I'm not a movie crier. Every time I see it. I, I, just, I think kids with ages in the single digits, I just don't – do they cry in response to something that happens on – a screen that not for something that scares them, but something, do they have an emotional response like that? I, I don't know. I, I've not seen evidence in my in my children of that kind of a response to a movie. Well, you're, you're, my children are cold. And <laughs> <laughs> if, if you've seen the movie uh, Village of the Damned, that is. Uh... <laughs> oh yeah, most definitely. I mean, it's sort of it's sort of an interesting thing where that particular response I think requires both a strong level of empathy and a strong understanding of abstract symbolism. But a true story, the first time I saw Iron Giant, it was in a theater that had the wrong lens on the projector. So I saw the entire thing uh, squashed. So everybody was like oh. super narrow and super tall. I was so mesmerized by the film, I, I could not make myself get up and go warn the theater. I mean, you know how to fix it. Uh, you know. oh, there's, that's, I, if, that's, if only Scott had been the projectionist. No, this is why, this is why digital projection well, is the future. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of the, the, the flawless efficiency of machines uh, is ideal for movie going. Uh, right, Scott? Uh, Scott? No, no. <laughs> well, 
All right, well, Scott, how about you? What have you What have you seen lately? Uh, well, I, I have so, I have a little something for our adventurous viewers. I'd like to re- recommend a film called Staying Vertical, which is the latest film from the director of Stranger by the Lake, which is, came out a couple of years ago. Sort of a gay Hitchcockian thriller ish, full of that ambiguity that we uh, love so much. Staying Vertical is currently. Uh, streaming on Netflix, as is Stranger by the Lake, for that matter. It's about a filmmaker who drives out into the countryside, ostensibly in search of a fresh face for his new movie, but really to escape the pressure of writing it. Uh, He meets a shepherdess. uh, He gets her pregnant. Uh, She bails and leaves him with a baby, uh, which he, uh, he has no experience in caring for and little interest in caring for. And that's pretty much it as far as the plot is concerned. Uh, There are other characters involved, but what really, what staying vertical is really about is the tension between commitment and freedom. Uh, it's about the fluidity of desire and hu- human sexuality. Uh, it features a live uh, birth, close-up of a live birth, if you're interested in watching that, in a film. And yet, that's not nearly as strange or provocative as it gets. It's a movie that you have to intuit your way through, almost like a David Lynch film, but not as determinedly weird. And um, I found it absolutely mesmerizing and baffling. And uh, if you're up for a really stiff challenge i would uh give it or give it a shot um maybe if maybe i'd try stranger by the lake first if you like that film maybe move on to staying vertical because that's a little little next level i did like stranger by the lake but when scott tobias tells me a film is a a stiff challenge i <laughs> i consider myself really heavily warned this is a man whose like favorite film is audition so it's, well it's a challenge and like it's more of a challenge for the the, the mind i guess other than you know if you don't want to see a close-up of a baby being born, then maybe, which is fine. I think it's fine. It's a beautiful thing. But and there's a lot of just well, it's it goes to some pretty strong places, I will say. But it's mostly a challenge to to figure out what what it's on about and uh, what to make of it. And I I find it a, a very pleasurable challenge and uh, really one of a kind, sort of mesmerizing experience. So uh, I sometimes pretty- think about. Well, the subscribers to Netflix who are mostly there for Orange is New Black and House of Cards and all the strange things that would await them if they just went a little off the beaten path, like live childbirth. Yeah, no, and they, and, they, and they would. And this film is like, this film, even though there's not a huge amount going on plot-wise, it's just absolutely like alluring from the start. You can't just, you can't take your eyes off of it. It's just, even at home, I just, I was coaxed into it. All right. Well, Scott has declared this film to be a challenge. I, I think everybody who watches it on his recommendation should tweet at him, challenge accepted. <laughs> Scott, what was the name of that film again? It's called Staying Vertical. Uh, we didn't actually do the thing at the what we're supposed to do at the bottom of the recommendations where we repeat what we're recommending. Uh, mine were John Sayles' Limbo and uh, Jack Shoulders' The Hidden. And I was, you know, the Iron Giant. <laughs> Nobody's ever going to forget that. No. How can, how can you forget that? That's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out July 11th and 13th. Tasha, what do we have lined up? As The Simpsons remind us, bacon, ham, and pork chops all come from the same wonderful, magical animal. So if you're a pig, your life's journey is from farm to table. If you're a super pig, on the other hand, maybe you stand a chance for survival. On our next show, we're going to look at two warm-hearted fantasies about pigs worth saving— Chris Noonan's Babe, about an orphaned pig that survives by learning how to be a sheepdog, and Bong Joon-ho's Okja, about a little girl who raises a genetically enhanced super pig in the Korean mountains and follows it all the way to New York City in an effort to prevent it from being turned into corporate jerky. Okja has just premiered on Netflix, and Babe is easily watched or rewatched on various streaming services. That'll do, Next Picture Show listeners.
That'll do. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of John Carpenter's The Thing and It Comes at Night and anything else film related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Scott? Well, you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias, and you can find my work in such publications as New York Times, Washington Post, NPR, Vulture, Variety, Uproxx, um, other fine publications. I'm also the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's Musics blog, Tasha. Uh, you can find me writing about film and TV at TheVerge.com, where, as of today, I am the new film and TV editor. Uh, you can find me doing what I've been doing for a while now, which is bringing in uh, dissolved veterans like Noel Murray and Charles Bromesco to write about film and TV for us. And if the film and TV section at The Verge is terrible, uh, now you can directly blame me. You can <laughs> come and complain to me about it when you find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. And you and I have the same job now. I'm just at uprocks.com as the film and TV uh, uh, editorial director. And that's where you can find me. You can find me on Twitter at KFIP3000. You can find our producer and usual co-host Genevieve Kosky at the culture section of vox.com and on Twitter at, at Genevieve Kosky. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at, at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Colin the Animal Griffith for his assistance producing the show, and thanks to Delmark Records for providing recording space at their home base, Riverside Studios. The Next Picture Show is proud to be a part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time.